0: from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can you count stars? Well, admittedly, this is a question that would have gone over a little bit better at nighttime when we first envisioned doing this Advent preaching series midweek after a customary soup supper as was our longstanding tradition. But alas, COVID had different plans. So instead of us all being inside on a Wednesday night, here we are all outside in broad daylight. Who knew? One day we'll look back at 2020 in hindsight and we'll say, hindsight is clearly not the same as foresight. Let 2020 forever remain in hindsight and never repeat. I bet I could get an amen on that one. But the preaching series for this Advent season is the same, nevertheless, inside or out, day or night, and our theme this year, to remind you again, is Jesus' family tree. We may not have stars out, and we'll get back to counting them, I promise, but at least we have a visual in some of the nearby trees that can serve as a handy object lesson for Jesus' family tree, right? Pastor Rob got us off to an excellent start last week looking at Jesus' royal line through the house of King David. Today we're going to dig even deeper into the family roots of our Lord. We're going back a full 2,000 years before Christ's birth. Now anybody who is interested in genealogies or has at least dabbled in one's own family history enough to uncover a quirky ancestral character or two can easily appreciate the rarity of being able to go back that far, 2,000 years. Why, if anyone here today were able to trace back their family history that far, you'd be leapfrogging past the Middle Ages, past the barbarian invasions, past the Goths and the Visigoths, and you'd find yourself back in the time of Caesars and gladiators back in the glory of Rome, and back in the afterglow of the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. That far. I think we could all agree how impressive it would be to say, my ancestor cleaned the stable where baby Jesus was born. Even if by that we meant he shoveled manure. It would still be quite impressive, and I would still claim bragging rights of that awesome privilege of having that ancestor. It's no wonder then that the Jews, as we see, for example, in, ex- in an exchange with grown-up Jesus in John chapter 8, that they are so quick to appeal to their relationship to Father Abraham as his modern-day descendants 2,000 years later. And by virtue of that family bloodline, they thought anyway they were automatically, by default, heirs of the promise. Well, Jesus points out to these confrontative religious leaders two things that show it's not that simple. First, when they insist, we are Abraham's offspring, his descendants, and add, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Jesus replies, truly I tell you, everyone who sins... Is a slave to sin. It must be said the Jewish leaders claim there that they have never been slaves is a strange one. When back in Genesis fifteen three God tells Abraham himself in no uncertain terms quote know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants Abraham will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, unquote. So the Jewish leaders Jesus is speaking with seem to have forgotten about that conversation. Clearly, what the Lord was revealing there to Abraham was the coming 400 years of Egyptian bondage that the Hebrew children would suffer in just a few generations after Abraham. Furthermore, those Jewish descendants 2,000 years later standing and confronting Jesus there while trying to hide behind Abraham were standing on occupied ground, Roman occupied ground. That same foreign power, Rome, was now oppressing them, a conquered Jewish state, even while they made their denials to Jesus about never needing to be set free from anyone. But all that notwithstanding, I like the approach that Jesus takes to all this when he faces feeble human rationalizations and our boastful denials. Jesus doesn't quibble with them over points of world history. Instead, Jesus confronts us sinners with our own personal history. In effect, he asks would-be deniers, have you ever sinned? Everyone who sins, he says, perhaps implying, does that include you? Have you ever even sinned? Once. Because that's all it takes. Only one sin in order to enslave. As we've seen with Adam and Eve. One sin corrupts innocence. Sullies the image of God in which we were created. And just one sin like a virus disrupts the whole health of the entire ecosystem and inevitably ushers in death. Now that's what well, gets passed on, a death sentence from one generation to the next, from Adam to Noah to Abraham and all his descendants, down to us in the present day. And that's why we come to church and confess to God and to one another that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. That's a confession of weakness. It's a confession of helplessness that breaks down our selfish pride. And that's a confession that not all are ready to make. But what's the logical alternative? Jesus confronts those Jewish leaders by challenging them. Are you really prepared to claim you've never sinned? Because everyone who sins is a slave to sin. As tempting as it might be to try and hide behind some laudable relatives and appeal to their bloodline, especially when that ancestor is the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. It still just doesn't work. We might try this today by appealing to our own Reformation heritage, for example, or by hiding behind the label Lutheran. If you're from a Catholic family, you might try to take refuge in that Catholic lineage But on the Lutheran front, I've met people from Sweden, from Germany, who say that just doesn't cut it anymore. And you know, it never really did. There's only one hero from heaven that ultimately counts. As we've seen already with King David, even Bible story heroes have feet of clay. The biblical record, as one of its marks of authenticity, does not flatter It tells it like it is and tells us where it is and isn't the proper place where we should put our hope. That's why in Jesus' genealogy, we see everything, warts and all, no matter who we're talking about, even Father Abraham. When you dig through the details of Abraham's life, a more true-to-life picture of the patriarch quickly emerges leafing through the book of Genesis, reveals that despite some very admirable qualities of kindness and loyalty, Abraham's inherited sinful nature nevertheless had created within him a yellow streak of sorts. His loyalty to his own wife, Sarah, took a backseat to his own fear when a king laid eyes upon Sarah, inspiring him to inquire about her availability. Apparently she was a looker even at that old age. Instead of protecting his wife, Abraham disavows Sarah, passing her off as his sister, and then watches as the king carts her off to his royal harem. All this to save his own life, for which he had feared. And that's why he withheld the full truth about being Sarah's husband. The half-truth was that she was, in fact, his half-sister, born of the same father, not the same mother. Now, this scenario of selling Sarah out to a king happens not once, but twice in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis 16, when Sarah gets impatient regarding God's promise to open her room her womb with her own son in her old age. Sarah invites her husband Abraham to help speed up the divine plan a bit by a little human intervention, namely her Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar. To the surrogate mother idea, Abraham offers no protest at all and becomes Sarah's willing accomplice in taking God's matter into their own hands instead of taking God at his word, while honoring his commitment to be faithful to his wife. Now, all this is not meant to be a knock session on Father Abraham, the cad. This is God's inspired word on Abraham, the called one. So why does God display such a clear focus on Abraham's shortcomings for literally billions of people down through the ages to read and discuss? well, those conf, confrontative rather, Jewish leaders back in John 8, in Abrahamic fashion, made their half-true statement on the matter. Even they were boasting of their Abrahamic, Abrahamic bloodline, um, and they admitted to Jesus, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you, Jesus, say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? The truth half of their astute observation there concerns the ultimate effects of sin, even on patriarchs and prophets. Death. The wages of sin is death. This they see even if not in all its full ramifications concerning themselves. The false half of their comment is where they attempt to answer their own question themselves through their own distorted lenses. Aren't we right, they say to to Jesus, in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Their fear was Jesus' great influence among the people and cutting into their power base. Their jealousy blinded them. This important question then of Jesus' identity, they should not have left up to their own lack of resources and twisted logic, but instead should have allowed God's word to speak to their ears and their hearts and their understanding. And then they should have clung to that. The difference between them and Abraham, whom they claim as their father, is that in the end, it is Abraham, not them who does receive and cling to God's word. Genesis 15:6 records his reward. It says, "Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. This righteousness by faith, by his belief and trust in God's word, and not in his own works, it's so key that's not only recorded here in Genesis, but it becomes a beautiful refrain throughout the whole Bible. In Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. In Romans, the just shall live by faith. In Galatians, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Hebrews, in James, in Titus, and finally, back in John this time, John chapter 3, we all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said that verse to another Jewish leader in his day. But this Jewish leader, instead of denouncing Jesus as demon-possessed, believed. Nicodemus was one of the two not-so-secret believers anymore who took Jesus down off the cross after Jesus finishing the foreshadowed sacrifice that Abraham only started with his own son Isaac. Abraham was told by God that he would become the father of many nations and that his descendants would be as countless as the stars in the sky at night. And yet God said this promise would be fulfilled in Isaac, whom God directs now, to Abraham to sacrifice the author of the book of hebrews inspired by the holy spirit concludes about this act of faith that abraham believed that god was able to raise isaac up even from the dead from which he also did receive him back in a figurative sense hebrews 11:19 says what god did through abraham's son in a figurative sense Way back in the book of Genesis, God completed, fully accomplished, in a literal historic reality through Abraham's greater son, Jesus of Nazareth. So then, back to that Pharisee's question. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus himself answers this question. Your father Abraham Rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham knew he himself was a sinner. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Slaves die. And one slave cannot free another. But a son Can set you free. Jesus, the sinless sacrifice, was and is the greater Son of Abraham, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only He can set you free from the power of sin and death. And He does so freely and graciously in the new covenant in His blood, which we celebrate today for the forgiveness of all your sins these 2,000 years later. God once asked Abraham, can you count stars? Today, you can count yourselves among the many, many descendants of Father Abraham, the father of all who believe. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. Amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you flawless before his presence be glory and majesty both now and forever. Amen.